Morning. Well, it's difficult to believe that this will be our last service of 2016 and that the Christmas season is upon us once more. Well, sadly, though, for most people, Christmas is simply a popular cultural tradition, a time of, of celebrating and feasting with Christmas trees, excessive decoration, elaborate lighting, time to exchange gifts and giving the credit to a mythological figure known as Santa Claus. And some may make the effort to attend an annual carol service or choose to send a greeting card with a picture of the nativity scene on the front. And sadly, for many, this marks the limit of their association with Christ. Now, I'm not intending to say this in a critical manner, for this is the type of Christmas I grew up with as the cultural norm. And for many years after becoming a Christian even, much of what I've described above continued to be a prominent part of Christmas, albeit with a much greater emphasis on remembering the birth of Jesus. But for a number of years now, I've felt an inner conviction to distance myself from many of these celebrations that have become the cultural norm. And I also notice that many other Christians are beginning to feel the same way too. Now some Christians have responded to the increasing excesses associated with Christmas by focusing attention on the so-called Christmas nativity story. But I do wonder to what extent the picture given to us in the traditional nativity scenes gives us a true representation of the historical account of Jesus' birth. Take a typical nativity scene. The type of scene portrayed on Christmas cards or in young children's nativity plays. There's always a stable, a wooden structure with a sloping roof and a star, and a star sitting on the apex. The doors are wide open and a bright glow comes out from within. In the centre is the baby Jesus, with Joseph and Mary looking happy and serene and showing little sign of having just endured the agonies of childbirth. Then there are the animals. Sheeps, cows, horses and donkeys. Don't forget the donkey. All, be all with beaming smiles looking gladly on. There are a few shepherds and three elegantly dressed men wearing crowns presenting neatly wrapped gifts to Jesus and his parents. So to what extent does this represent a reliable picture of the events that occurred on the night that Jesus was born? Where in the Bible would one look to find out? Well, surely we need to begin in the Gospels. But which one? Well, neither Mark nor John give us any details at all. Mark begins with the start of Jesus' public ministry as an adult, as does John, albeit after his magnificent introduction in which he declares that the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. Now it may surprise you to learn that Matthew gives no information either. He does describe events prior to Jesus' birth from Joseph's perspective. He informs us angels appear to him to reassure him that Mary, his betrothed, was with child as the consequence of a miraculous event which was the fulfilment of a prophecy given by Isaiah. We read it in Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall be with child 
And therefore Joseph should not be afraid to take Mary as his wife. Then in chapter 2 he immediately deals with events after the birth of Jesus. If you read Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. So were the wise men present on the night Jesus was born? Well, clearly not. So I'm afraid on our nativity scene, the wise men have to go. Matthew tells us that they did eventually meet Mary and Joseph, but it's clear that this was some considerable time later, possibly as much as two years. Evidence in the text suggests this. Among it is that the fact that Jesus is described as a young child, not a baby. And Mary and Joseph are living in a house, not a stable. That only leaves the Gospel of Luke. And Luke, the historian, gives us far more detail as to the events surrounding Jesus' birth, particularly from Mary's perspective. And only he describes what happened on the night that Jesus was born. And Neil is going to read that for us now. Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, and who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us... Now go to Bethlehem and see the thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had heard and seen as it was told them. So was Jesus born in the stable? Does it say that the stable was the benevolent provision of a compassionate innkeeper who could not accommodate them? 
You see, what we've been led to believe is mere speculation. The invention of someone trying to fill in the blanks. So if not a stable at the back of an inn, where exactly was Jesus born? The only detail we're given as to the precise location was the one the shepherd, given to the shepherds by the angel. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, as far as directions go, this, at least at first sight, does not appear to help very much. So what do we know? Well, we do know that it all happened in Bethlehem and that Bethlehem was a city. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I thought that Bethlehem was a small town. After all, don't we sing, O little town of Bethlehem? So was Bethlehem a small town or a city? Now, if Luke describes Bethlehem as a city... Where do we get the idea that it was a little town from? Well, we actually get it from the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, it reads, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, through you, though, sorry, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Now, this prophecy given by Micah was about seven hundred was given about seven hundred years earlier, foretelling the birthplace of Israel's Messiah. Yet, although it was a prophecy concerning the future, it was also of great relevance for the people who lived at that time, for it was a promise of future restoration for them. And at the time it was given, Bethlehem was indeed a small town. But in the 700 years leading up to the birth of Christ, and historical and archaeological evidence supports this, it had become a city, even larger than it is today. However, this doesn't help us much. If Bethlehem was a little town of less than 50 buildings, then it would have been easy for the shepherds to find Jesus given the angel's instruction. But since Bethlehem was a city with thousands of buildings, it could have taken days. Yet the angel emphasised the fact that swaddling cloths and the manger were highly significant, for they would be a sign to them. And clearly from what Luke wrote, they were, since Luke states in verse 16 that they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. They knew exactly where to find them. But how? What was the significance of the swaddling cloths and the manger? And why was the angelic announcement of the Saviour's birth only made to those shepherds? And what were they doing in the fields anyway? What was so important and valuable about those sheep that they needed to be guarded overnight? You don't normally do that. Now I'm going to make a suggestion. And just like those who've tried to fill in the blanks with stories of benevolent innkeepers, I'm going to offer an alternative explanation. One I feel that better explains the details given by Luke and also emphasises the theological significance of Jesus' birth. But like all suggestions, I caution you to weigh it carefully. The 19th century historian Alfred Edersheim asserted that the shepherd, that the sheep, the shepherds were watching over, were no ordinary sheep. 
They were sheep specially kept for the purpose of sacrifice in the temple at Jerusalem. They were temple flocks. And the, and the shepherds, he suggests, were either Levites or were men who had been specially trained by Levites to care for them appropriately. Now, we know from our studies in Romans and in 1 Peter that in the first century, Jews dispersed throughout the whole of the Roman Empire would travel hundreds of miles from places as far away as Rome and northern Turkey to attend the three annual Jerusalem feasts the first of which being Passover in the spring. Now, to celebrate Passover, there was a requirement that every family had to bring a one-year-old male lamb without spot or blemish for sacrifice. And clearly, those who travelled long distances did not bring them with them. Rather, they would have purchased the animal upon arrival in Jerusalem from the temple. And given the numbers involved, a large supply of appropriate animals would therefore have been needed. But it would not have only been those who came from afar that would have needed to buy a lamb. Locals too would have purchased them. Even people who owned sheep may have needed to buy a lamb, since all lambs for sacrifice had to be inspected and approved by priests in the temple during the week before Passover. And if the priest found fault, the owner would need to buy a temple lamb as an alternative. So hopefully you understand why the shepherds were in the field watching over them. These were animals of high value. But it would not have been necessary for them to have been in the fields during the daytime. Bethlehem, like other towns in those days, had a watchtower from which the shepherds could look out for thieves or predators. But at night, the shepherds could only protect them by being in the field with them. Now the lower section of that tower was also part uh, of particular use to these shepherds, particularly during the lambing season. You see, when a ewe was due to give birth, the shepherds would bring the ewe into the lower section of that tower for shelter and protection. Now, one of the dangers for the newborn was that immediately after being born, the shock of the experience would cause it to panic. The newborn would often try to scramble to its feet and in the process either break a leg or damage tendons and ligaments rendering itself lame and therefore not suitable for sacrifice. So to prevent this, the shepherds would wrap the newborn in bandages called swaddling cloths and to, to immobilise the animal and to keep it warm. And then they would place the animal in a manger until it was sufficiently calm before taking it to its mother for suckling. Do you see the significance? The suggestion is that Jesus was born in the very place that the Passover lambs were born. And that is why the swaddling cloths and the manger were assigned to the shepherds. That's how they knew where to find Jesus. The Passover lambs were assigned pointing to Jesus, indicating that he was born to make a sacrifice for the sin of mankind. Now this was later confirmed by John the Baptist, immediately before Jesus was baptised at the beginning of his public ministry. Do you recall what he said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now when you consider who John was, the significance of that statement becomes even more apparent. Now most of us are aware that he was the cousin of Jesus and that he was a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. But John was not only a prophet. 
if you've been reading the early chapters of Luke, you'll know who John's father was. It was Zechariah. And what did he do for a living? He was a priest who served in the temple. Well, what about his mother? Well, she was Elizabeth. And do you know who her most famous ancestor was? She was the descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And what did Aaron become? A priest. So, John the Baptist was both a prophet and a priest, since the priesthood was hereditary. And this means that John was doubly qualified to declare whether a lamb was of suitable quality to be sacrificed. And that's exactly what he was doing as Jesus approached him to be baptised. Now what does baptism symbolise? Death and resurrection. And this link with Passover is further confirmed by the Apostle Paul, who wrote to the church at Corinth, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. It was also confirmed by the Apostle Peter, who wrote to the churches of northern Turkey and writing, We are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. Now, those of us who have been Christians for some time will see the significance of all this. But I'm aware that some listening, either here today or maybe online, may not be. So why is Jesus so closely linked with the Feast of Passover? Well, in the well-known carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, with which we close our service today, the fourth line says, God and sinners reconciled. And who are these sinners that God is to be reconciled to? Well, it's talking about you and me. Indeed, it's talking to the whole of mankind. The Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And who can say that they've never done things that they know to have been wrong? And who can say that they have not neglected to do the good things that they know that they should have done? And the consequences of sin are very serious. The Bible tells us that our sins cut us off from having a relationship with God. It also tells us that the very first sin, the rebellion of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, the ancestors of the whole of mankind, is the reason that death entered the world. Death, you see, was the moral penalty for their sin. And it's because of this we experience death. Not only death, but disease, suffering and even natural disasters. The whole of creation was corrupted as a consequence. However, God did make a promise that he would one day send a special person, a redeemer, who would put right the wrong they had done so that God and mankind could be reconciled. So how would people recognise this person when he came? Well, the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament times, particularly Passover, were a sign to show people what the Redeemer would be like. The Passover lambs were without spot or blemish to indicate that the Redeemer would live a faultless life of perfect obedience to God. They were sacrificed to show people that the Redeemer would have to die so that the sin of mankind could be forgiven. The Bible states that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiving of sin. 
So how could Jesus live a perfect life and how could his death on the cross pay for all the sin of mankind? Well, Jesus was not only fully human, he was also fully God. In the reading we heard earlier from John's Gospel, it tells us that God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And we know that his sacrifice was accepted because three days after he died and was put into a tomb, God raised him from the dead. So what does this all mean? Well, because of Jesus' sacrifice, those who put their trust in him can stand before Almighty God justified. Justified never done a wrong thing in my entire life. It also means a person can stand before Almighty God justified. Justified lived a perfect life of obedience to God just as Jesus did. What an offer. Jesus takes our wrongdoing, our sin upon himself and pays the penalty for it and in return gives us his righteousness. He credits to us his perfect life. And how does a person receive this? Well, the Bible tells us that salvation is a free gift from God to mankind to be received by faith. So it's no surprise then that the angels rejoiced so much when Jesus was born. And this is why we as Christians celebrate his birth 2,000 years later. It's good news. It's good news indeed. It's the gospel. This time next week, you will no doubt be exchanging gifts with family and friends. But when you receive a gift, let it be a reminder of the free gift of salvation that God has made available to each of us. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. May God bless you all. Amen.